0: Hello and welcome to Life With Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host or registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. And guys, it's February. Uh, We are one month into 2020 and like this has been a month. Um, There's been a lot going on and not only here in Worth Your Wild nutrition land, but also just all over the world. And It's crazy. I think 2020 is going to be quite the year and I am so happy to say that today finally is my Q&A episode. So I am really excited to share this episode with you all. I talked to several different providers, therapists, um, dietitians, and I think we've got some great answers to the questions that you all sent in. So we'll get to that. But of course, first we have our article of the week. And today I wanted to share a research article. It's from a few years back, but I think it's really important um, because I talk a lot on here about the female athlete triad. I am someone who had the female athlete triad. A lot of my patients are sufferers of the female athlete triad. But, uh, there has been a shift in sports nutrition and sports medicine. Um, and now we are starting to refer to it as relative energy deficiency in sport or red s. And um, this is a really important shift because it's, you know, understanding that the female athlete triad does not only affect women or females, and it is more of a syndrome. So it's not just, you know, that you have Osteoporosis or stress fractures, and you have lost your period or menstruating um, cycles, you don't have those anymore, and you have an eating disorder. Instead, it's a collection of um, different symptoms that really all result from the fact that you aren't eating enough to compensate for what you are doing. So it's not only affecting those who have full blown eating disorders, but people who just simply are not eating enough, whether that is intentional or not, to cover their exercise and sport. So this is a really interesting article. It was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and it really goes into depth about relative energy deficiency in sports. I'm just going to read a little bit of the abstract. Protecting the health of the athlete is a goal of the International Olympic Committee, IOC. The IOC convenes an expert panel to update the 2005 IOC consensus statement on the female athlete triad. This consensus statement replaces the previous and provides guidelines to guide risk assessment, treatment, and return to play decisions. The IOC expert working group introduces a broader, more comprehensive term for the condition previously known as female athlete triad, the term relative energy deficiency in sport, red S, as I just explained points to the complexity involved and the fact that male athletes are also affected. The syndrome of RED-S refers to impaired physiological function, including, but not limited to, metabolic rate, menstrual function, bone health, immunity, protein protein synthesis, cardiovascular health caused by relative energy deficiency. So it goes on, and it's really informative about RED-S, and I really suggest that all of you read it, because I will be having a sports week in eating disorders Um, coming up in March. I'm going to have several different athletes and also um, those who work in the growing fields of incorporating exercise into eating disorder treatment and how you can really work with athletes and those who just enjoy exercising to keep that as part of their life while they are, um, you know, reconstructing their relationship with food and their body. Before we launch into the Q&A episode, I just want to remind you all that we are having a National Eating Disorders Awareness Week series on Life With Ed, the podcast. So there's going to be an episode out every single day, the week of February 24th. And I would love to feature stories of listeners. So these can be anonymous or have your name, whichever you prefer. And I just wanna share your experience either as someone who has had an eating disorder or someone who works with eating disorders or has had a family member have an eating disorder whatever it is and share your message of awareness for everyone who maybe doesn't understand about eating disorders or feels sort of alone because I think one of the most powerful things that all of us can experience is realizing that others have gone through the same thing we have or just so if you would like to share your story please send that to me at worth R-T-H, your wild nutrition at gmail.com. Um, and I will be more than happy to share it on those five episodes. All right. So here we go with the Q&A episode. Enjoy start, I just want to say thank you to everyone who submitted a question. I have boiled all those questions down to 26 that I have four different providers answering. So on the show today, you're going to hear written responses that I'll read from two different providers. That's Dr. Alyssa Bennett. She's a pediatrician focusing in eating disorders at the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And then a therapist. Um, She's a social worker. Her name is Nina Gilbert. She is really fantastic and works with eating disorders as a especially in children and families. So you'll hear from her as well. Um, I will be reading those responses since they sent in written answers. And then you'll hear from Kirsten Ackerman and Lori Grumbaum. They were both on the podcast this past year, so you might recognize their voice. They had great answers to your questions. So here we go. Question one went to Dr. Alyssa Bennett. What are some ways you can recognize that your child has an eating disorder? I've received this question many times, um, multiple different forms. And I think listeners are really curious. Is like, what should I be looking for and concerned about in terms of my child? And Dr. Alyssa Bennett, um, she told me that the best things to look out for as a parent are picky eating, skipping meals, going to the bathroom directly after meals, avoiding social situations that include food, obsessive exercise, negative comments about their body. Those are really the main things to look for. I would add just like, Change, you know, something changing in your um, child's just a, like they're not the same. Something seems a little different. Maybe they're acting differently around food. It is the best thing to do is really to tune in and understand, you know, is this how your child has always been or is, did some change occur? Question two went to Nina Gilbert What do you do if your kid tells you they have an eating disorder? And she said, hard to imagine a kid naming this themselves. But if they do, get them right to therapy. And um, that's interesting because I was a child who straight up told my parents, like, I have an eating disorder. Um, But I think with younger children, that is going to be less common. With later teens or young adults, definitely they might figure it out themselves before a parent or doctor tells them. But um, she's basically getting at that kids, that's pretty unlikely to happen. Also, if you catch it early enough, it's not going to happen because by the time someone realizes they have an eating disorder and can vocalize it in that way, they are so far into that disorder. Like it has probably been years, to be honest. Question three, also to Nina, how do you keep a strong relationship with your child through eating disorder recovery? She said, you prioritize their well-being and health over your friendship, like ability with your child. This may mean being the bad guy, but they will likely thank you later and it will create a healthier relationship later. It's not going to feel good in the moment is really what she's stressing. Manage your own anxiety. Go to therapy yourself. Learn about codependency and take care of yourself. So the best thing you can do as a parent is take care of yourself yourself. And remain the parent. Don't try to be their friend through this. Question four, who is the Maudsley method good for? So Dr. Bennett said Maudsley or family-based treatment, FBT, is the most effective treatment option for adolescents with anorexia nervosa and is often an effective treatment for adolescents and young adults with other types of eating disorders as well. So I think what she's getting at there, that it is a great method for younger um, individuals with eating disorders, so children, adolescents, maybe young adults, and that it's really most effective for those with anorexia. Next, I asked Nina the same question about the Maudsley method. And her answer was, the number one thing is that you as a parent have a healthy relationship with food, including you are not dieting or have an active eating disorder yourself. You know portions and balanced nutrition and can feed your child appropriately. And she's basically saying like in order to do the Maudsley method, you have to be a parent who has an impeccable relationship with food. Like if you are a parent who is chronic dieting, the Maudsley method is not for your family because you cannot accurately tell your child what they should be eating and you might have judgments about what the dietician or the therapist or doctor suggests. So it may not be the answer that you want to hear, but... Your relationship with food as a parent has a huge impact on the child's relationship with food. Question five also went to Nina, and the question is, how do you know what type of treatment to start with? This is a question I hear all the time. It's confusing. You hear all these different types of treatment out there, and you don't know which one is best for you. And Nina said the best thing to do is seek out just one eating disorder professional, whether that is a doctor or a therapist or a dietitian, and let them make this determination based on their knowledge, expertise, training and assessment of the patient. It can even be like calling someplace like Walden or Center for Discovery and doing an intake with them and they can advise, you know, where you should go, whether that into inter-residential or outpatient and what type of therapy you need. I took question six because it is a question I get asked all the time and it was, how do you find a provider that takes your insurance? It's a really good question because um, it's so complicated. Some providers, especially in the outpatient world, in private practice world, don't take insurance at all. So, in that situation, if you really can't find a provider that takes your insurance, you can ask pretty much any private practice provider to make what's called a super bill. And a super bill can be used to have your insurance cover that. Expense. So basically, sometimes you have out-of-network, it's called, um, dollars, like (laughs) you have a certain amount of money you can spend on out-of-network providers, and if you get a super bill from a provider, then you can use that money to cover the cost. In terms of finding a provider that actually accepts your insurance, I mean, the best database is... NEDA's database online. So that's the National Eating Disorders Association's database and it does include whether the provider accepts insurance or not. It is not a 100% complete database, but it does have a lot of providers. The other thing you can do is just ask, <laughs> ask around. So if you are seeing a therapist who um takes your insurance, she probably or he probably knows a dietitian who also takes your insurance. Chances are the medical doctor will take your insurance, so that at least is covered. Um, Insurance works much better with medical providers. For therapists and dietitians, it's going to be harder, but I recommend just asking around, check out the database, and of course, if you're in the New Haven area, I accept Anthem and Cigna, so I'm a good place to start. Question seven was a great follow-up to question six, and it was, why do so few eating disorder dietitians take insurance? Well, the answer is it takes a really long time to get credentialed with an insurance company. So like three to four months, the standard time you have to wait as a provider is 120 days now. So that's like four months um, before you can start accepting that insurance. That's after a pretty lengthy application process, some phone, phone calls, which are confusing, and applications, which don't make sense. And the reimbursement rate is less than potentially you could charge in an outpatient setting if you're asking for out-of-pocket fee. Um, that doesn't mean that providers should not go through that effort, but that is the reason why so many do not. Basically, it's a headache, it's a pain in the butt, and they might get paid less than if they just use out-of-pocket fees. Question eight went to dietitian Kirsten Ackerman and it was, I understand Haze, health at every size, but I have a hard time believing it applies to me. What do I do?
1: Yeah. So we were talking a little bit about this before um, and I was trying to understand, I guess, where the the listener was coming from. Um, And we were talking about, you know, I think sometimes it's really easy to think that (laughs) that um health at every size you know you kind of are accepting of it in other people it's like Mm -hmm. okay like other people can be healthy at a range of sizes that's great like I don't judge other people for existing that way but like when it comes to yourself and like kind of thinking about being okay with being at you know a larger size um or not trying to manipulate and control your size that can be really hard yeah I think
0: the I've had a couple people send in a question relating to this Mm -hmm. and they just sort of understand and respect someone else and be like okay yeah that's great like I don't care you know what size your body is I don't Mm -hmm. care um, about if you're working towards weight loss or not working towards Mm -hmm. weight loss I am
1: happy that you're not Um, but for themselves it's really hard to let go of yeah and I think this is where the idea of internalized fat phobia Mm -hmm. and weight stigma comes in which is sounds like a big term but essentially it's like you know bringing those that that perception in towards yourself and how you view yourself um so it's like there's still this inherent like fat phobia this that exists this fear of being in a larger body um but it's only it's kind of only taking place inside yourself in reality it's it's likely taking place in sneaky ways yeah. um, beneath yeah. the surface in, in, and just how you perceive
0: someone i think exactly like, I mean, all of us make split second judgments Mm -hmm. and you can't always control like what you're judging. And a lot of that can be sort of how do you view larger people?
1: Yeah. And I think like I always think about this from the perspective of like when I was in, you know, school becoming a dietitian or whatever, just before I I knew about health at every size and, and all of this stuff if someone had said to me, like, it had brought up fat phobia, mm-hmm. first of all, I would never would have heard of it. But yeah. second of all, I would have been like, Oh, my God, that's terrible. Like, why? Why are people judging people for being in larger bodies? Like, you know, like I obviously would have come from this compassionate lens. However, I had no idea that like, fat phobia was totally existing within me just right. because I live in a culture that it's, you know, it's rampant. It's It's everywhere. Yeah. And I so I worked
0: at high schools all last year. And I mm-hmm. used to ask my students, you know, basically, do you consider yourself fat phobic or like, what does fat phobic mean? And they would look at me like, what? And then I would say, well, if someone is fat or larger, you know, do you view them differently? Or do you think things automatically about them? Or would you view yourself differently if you were? And like, the answer is almost always yes from Mm -hmm. them. And so that was pretty telling that it's like, oh, I, I don't dislike them, but... You know, sort of thing.
1: Exactly. Right. And I think it, like, oftentimes it comes back to, in those situations, it comes back to, like, but health, right? Like, it comes back to yeah. that. Kind and of, so many yeah. people say you can't deny that it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, again, is just like the the perception. the That's the fat phobia. Like, that's the weight stigma that's so ingrained that we don't even yeah. know that it's there. We're and just you're like, like, of course <laughs> being fat is unhealthy, period. Like, right. And you're like, well, can you tell me what? Like, what
0: is yeah, unhealthy? Yeah. Yeah. Question nine went to Laurie Grunbaum, and it was, does everyone with an eating disorder need to see a
2: therapist? Absolutely. Because the medical doctor is really only there if they're in physical danger, right? You know, and so really therapy is the only way to actually achieve recovery. And again, that's a long journey and it varies as much set time because therapy in general is long. And so, you know, so it's just really anyone with an eating disorder, I believe, in order to be well and recovery of any sort has to, have a long-term relationship with a good seasoned therapist who really understand these disorders and also you know their underlying causes and all the multiple factors that go into it
0: right yeah i think this question came from a place of well they're weight restored and their vitals are fine so like do they need anything else and basically yes like there's so much more to yeah eating disorder. well
2: because <laughs> and that's part of the denial right like right time, yeah i don't need anything and of course. The whole, you know, as you talked about, you know, on uh, your first podcast I was on with you, that people with eating disorders, these are disorders of deprivation, and these are people who Mm -hmm. deny their own needs, and they're self-neglecting, so it's like, it's a badge of honor for them to say, I don't need that, I don't need that, you know, and so they don't get their needs met, but they're so used to that, and they also think it's a weakness to need something, and they're not supposed to have needs in one, you know, let alone for like mental you know, health issues and, and
0: recovery. Question 10 went back to Dr. Bennett, and it was, how do I know when my weight is restored? Her answer was, when you are eating appropriately throughout the day, i.e. at least three full meals and snacks as needed, honoring hunger and fullness cues, choosing foods you want of all varieties, your body will settle where it wants to settle, aka your weight is restored females should also have regular monthly menstrual periods again that's a great indicator for um girls and women and that's one reason like if you're in eating disorder recovery i strongly strongly advise like to not be on birth control like if you're in eating disorder recovery and you don't have your period and you go on birth control whether it's the arm implant an iud the pill whatever it prevents a Provider from knowing if you um, have natural menstruation. So, we can't really use that as an indicator of health anymore. So, she said heart rate and blood pressure will return to normal as well. So, if you are someone who is suffering from severe anorexia and your heart rate and your blood pressure were altered um, due to your lack of nutrition, they will return to normal when you are at a restored weight. So that whole answer has like nothing to do with weight. And that's something I really want to drive home here. There is no weight that any provider or any sort of dietitian, therapist should ever give you as like, this is the weight that is perfect, that we know you're healthy and whatever. There is no such thing. We cannot give that to you. All we can say is that you are doing the behaviors that are correct. Like eating all your meals, eating all your snacks, not purging, not binging, not restricting, and that you feel good, you have your period back, or um, if you're a man, obviously that is not um, part of health for you, but you have all normal body functions back and your blood pressure is normal and your heart rate is normal. It's not about weight, even though that's the answer for when is your weight restored. Question 11 was for Kirsten Ackerman and the question was how do I know when I've reached my ideal body weight?
1: First of all I guess like even just like the concept of of ideal body weight was is man-made. Yeah. Second of all I think so to answer the question kind of directly I think when you're eating and moving in a way that like feel great for your body and Mm -hmm. like you know you're honoring your hunger most of the time you're kind of feeling your fullness most of the time but not all the time because that's you know human and normal um yeah like that's probably and and where your body naturally can maintain right Mm -hmm. so like where you're not trying to manipulate it and you're just eating and again eating and moving in that comfortable way and your body is your body weight is stable there whatever that is Mm -hmm. is your ideal weight
0: yeah Question 12 was for Kirsten as well. And it was, is there ever a time that it is okay to try to lose weight?
1: So I'm going to go back to what I just said. If we're talking (laughs) about like a focus being on weight, we're on the wrong page. Right. So, and I know that that's, I I don't want to be like dismissive with the answer because I know that, again, we live in this culture that like brainwashes us to think that like weight should be the focus if I'm trying to support my health and take Mm. care of myself like maybe I quote unquote need to lose weight. Um, my guide or like my guidance or recommendation here would be that like to shift away from the weight, shift towards the behaviors and that our culture just kind of assumes that quote unquote trying to lose weight equals engaging in healthier behaviors. Yeah.
0: And yeah.
1: And it reminds me so much
0: of like when I went to college and I needed to gain weight to be healthy mm. and it's like so many people would think you go to college you gain weight that is unhealthy but I literally was told no you have to gain weight yeah. so it's just like no obviously people need to lose and gain
1: weight at different times mm-hmm. or just not care and yeah. just like are they treating their body with respect yeah but um, also like in that situation too it makes me think of like and I, I want to be gentle with saying this, but like what I'm thinking is like, did you need to gain weight or did you need to properly nourish and like adjust your right, behaviors right. to support your body? Yeah. You because yeah. again, that's, that's the focus. Right, the focus on weight is like, oh, like, can we just focus on like, I need to nourish and support and take care of my body in a way that like yeah. feels best for it. Whichever way that resulted in, yeah. like if I needed to gain weight or not, right?
0: Yeah, right. or ended up gaining weight or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Question 13, why does my anxiety seem worse after I stop purging and binging?
2: Yeah, I talk to people about this all the time because actually eating disorder symptoms are a lower level, more primitive symptom. And anxiety is as hard as it is and as horrible as it feels is a higher level symptom by itself. I mean, eating disorders are also anxiety disorders, but anxiety in the absence of the eating disorder you know, is a higher-level symptom, and so they're graduating to the next level. And because the eating disorder is, you know, a coping mechanism for all these feelings and for some of the other anxieties, and so when you take that away, you are going to feel more anxious for a while. And I always do talk about that with my patients, and they always voice that. And so it's a very important thing to understand, and that it doesn't mean anything bad. It doesn't mean, you know, you're not progressing.
0: Question 14, how do I motivate myself to want to recover?
2: You know, I always talk about that with patients too, because usually once they come in, not always, but sometimes that's the moment that they're ready, right? They feel ready to take that step, but there's always a ton of resistance, but they may come in and not be ready. So, you know, and they're, you know, well, yeah, forget it. The younger you are, the less motivated they will be, probably, because. You know, there's always always resistance, there's always ambivalence, and people will say all the time, and these are even adults with anorexia, even though they, and these are adults that are already committed and want to get well, but the ambivalence is, and they will say this out loud, I still want to lose weight, and I know that, and they'll say, and I know that's wrong, but I still want to lose weight, and and then we just talk about that and talk about what that means and how scary it is to let go of what is in this. Control and coping mechanisms that, gradually, as they get stronger in their life and, and in their own abilities to face a lot of different things, that they won't need it anymore. That they can they can actually let go of this, you know, and and leave it behind and not carry this and thing. But um, so it is, there isn't a how-to manual for how to motivate, right? It's a readiness factor, and no one can force you. You have to want it, and you have to work through that resistance and ambivalence. It's going to be there. It's not going to be a straight line, right? To recovery It's going to be, you know, two steps forward, one step back, that kind of thing.
0: Back to Kirsten, question 15. Is there any diet that is okay to go on?
1: So my thought with this, like where my mind goes, is that like anytime we're relying on external mm-hmm. rules and guidelines and like, oh, like you know, this, this tells me I should be doing this or I should eat a carrot then or whatever. (laughs) It's always a carrot. I just want to say like
0: in my podcast, it's always comes back to carrots, you know? And that's why my logo is a carrot because every dietitian talks about carrots (laughs) and every person with an eating disorder and life with an eating disorder is really all about
1: carrots. So (laughs) that's that's the funniest thing ever. I swear we did not plan this. No, um, that's perfect. But yeah, anything that sets it towards something external to yourself is disconnecting you from your body. Right. Yeah.
0: And following
1: like some weird printout
0: of what you should be doing.
1: Like, why does
0: that website know better (laughs) than you? (laughs) You know, just a random one. Why does
1: it know? Exactly. Right. Like, I think that the more that we can come back to the feedback of our own bodies in our own bodies. Again, like obviously the more connected we're going to be and the more at peace we're going to be with food and our bodies. So obviously the one other thing I think of with this question is like certain like medical situations that like require certain, you know, shifts and whatever. But even in th- that case with like, you know, medical diets that people need to follow as much as we can come back to like the feed again the feedback our body's giving us yeah does it feel good exactly so yeah and that's a good thing to bring up too obviously if you have celiac disease it's really great to go on a
0: gluten-free diet um you don't feel good if you're not on a gluten-free diet so that should be the indicator right not necessarily like gluten-free is going to change your body in some way but that you Mm -hmm. feel better
1: yeah, or even that like it's and it's it's just sometimes it's a perspective shift rather than like all right I'm following a gluten free diet because you know I have to and this like sucks and whatever it's really whatever restrictive but it's like oh I I'm choosing yeah. to follow this because it feels best in my body and allows me to thrive like it's that that perspective shift yeah. allowing you the permission to choose yeah to and I think it.
0: about that with lactose intolerance a
1: lot because you kind
0: of do have. The choice, not not mm. to say, you know, everyone with lactose intolerance should go out and drink some milk, but <laughs> like I am mildly lactose intolerant. I can choose to have ice cream mm-hmm. and like I might be a little bit uncomfortable later, but I can make that choice because I want it or I can choose like I don't want to have that discomfort, so I'm not going to have it. Um, my body is fine pretty much either way it's just like how what do I want and you can very much make that choice
1: whereas if you approach it from I'm lactose intolerant it would be bad if I you know ate this ice cream right now I'd be being
0: bad right yeah it's not like a guilt I shouldn't feel like guilty exactly yeah question 17 was for Lori and it was how do you know when it's time to find a new therapist is there a point where you need to Like, they've tried all their tricks, and it's time for a new one.
2: Yeah, wow, I get that a lot, too. And I've had people come to me from other clinicians. I mean, it's really about, I mean, you know, I would say that first and foremost, you have to feel a good connection with the therapist. And, you know, but that may not be enough. If you have an eating disorder, and you're seeing a therapist who doesn't really specialize in eating disorders and understand the dynamics of eating disorders and how to treat them and how to treat the underlying causes while working with the symptoms as well and have all that kind of an integrated approach, then you really, you know, even though you may really like that therapist you've been with, you may not make enough progress. And I've had people say that their therapist has even told them, I don't think I'm the best person to continue with you because I see that you really need something more than I can offer you. But sometimes the person comes to that themselves and says, I don't think I'm making progress. And it's just kind of a gut feeling that, you know, and it's, I know it's very complicated because everybody's just in therapy and scared, and so some of it can be, you know, this isn't good enough, you know, and, and just a way to escape. So it, it's, it's a hard issue to figure out, like, you know, because normally I would tell people to trust their gut, but I guess, you know, you can't always... With some of these issues, but most of the time, if you can, because you feel like this isn't right for some reason, right? Not just like they're not fixing me, but there's just something not right, you know, not clicking. It's not really, you know, I'm not um, understanding and really sort of feeling like, you know, wow, I'm really knowing, you know, how to work my recovery.
0: Question 18 How do you know if you're eating too much? So, short
1: answer like, first of all, if you're recovering from diet culture, chronic dieting, you know, disordered eating, an eating disorder, there's gonna be some times when you're eating, quote unquote, too much, an amount that maybe feels uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. In the beginning,
0: right. And also, I think if you are recovering from any of those things your stomach like has no idea like what feels like the right amount. So especially if you're coming from like a place of restriction um, and then you start having even what might be like a normal sized meal, you're like, oh, that was way too much. Like I have a stomach ache. Yes. And it's like, no, in that scenario, don't listen to that. And you need to work through, um, you know, some time of like eating what is a more normal amount.
1: Yeah, so I guess specifically, like if you're, you know, in recovery from an eating disorder, like relying on your treatment team and coming back to that and like trusting,
0: right, and waiting. Like maybe you're gonna eat more than your body really needs for a few weeks or months or years, and that's okay. And like eventually, you'll sort of figure out. Okay, like this is when I
1: feel best. Exactly. Like give it, give it some time to like settle out as you're in certain phases of your recovery process. But in time you will be able to trust your cues and you'll be, and like, you'll know that, you know, you're quote unquote eating too much by the feedback that your body's giving you. Um, but also I think like approaching it from like, why am I eating too much? Um, can kind of be unhelpful rather than looking at it as like, what is maybe leading me? Like, like, if I'm coming home and eating a bunch of food and I feel like crap and I feel like I ate too much, well, did I not eat for an extended period of time? And yeah. then like, that was the issue, not the quote unquote eating too much. Or right. did I eat too much like, to an uncomfortable point because I'm struggling with something emotionally? Okay. Well then that's the issue, right. not the amount of food that I ate. It's like there, there's usually some underlying thing that's yeah. kind of driving.
0: Question nineteen: Do people often experience multiple eating disorders during the course of their life?
2: Oh, well, it really varies. Some people, you know, flip over, as you know from your work, from anorexia to bulimia, and they do it kind of in in a continuous way, right? Like they don't take a break. I think, you know, where they're they seem they're seemingly fine, usually, but easily. And I think we may have even talked about this last time. That. that's not a bad sign. It's actually a better sign because usually they're even if they're binging, they're eating more, and the weight is going to get up a little bit, and more. Their brain is more capable of doing the work because when the brain is in a deprived nutritional state, you know, it really prevent. It, it, it adds to the eating disorder itself because the brain's not working right, and so it's harder and they're more resistant to recovery. And, you know, anorexia can be unbelievably intractable and resistant to treatment. So if they are if they flipped over to binging and purging or just binging, they, have, they often have more potential and it's more workable. So that's not a bad thing, but you, often, you kind of ask, do they often have multiple in their lives? I just think it really varies, or so they may just go from one kind of symptom to another kind of symptom. You know, it's hard, it's really hard to say, but I have, you know, seen those people who don't come in for treatment, you know, with anorexia and they carried it like they're like in their 40s or even older and like never really, um, recovered. They might have even gone in and out of either they haven't sought treatment or they've been in and out of treatment, but never really recovered so that they're almost it's almost like they're coming in for the first time. And so they've carried it with them for so many years of their life.
0: Question 20. Are any foods bad or any foods good?
1: So short answer, no. Like, obviously, like with the intuitive eating approach, like uh, approach, we're trying to, you know, really eliminate the judgments around foods being inherently good, inherently bad. Um, You know, I think that the reason they fall into these camps is because, We kind of associate like, oh, well, this one's healthier and this one's unhealthy. And that's kind of the same. They're just different words for the same kind of dichotomy. Yeah. Um, The more that we can neutralize foods and really, you know, allow this all foods fit model, um, the more at peace we're going to be with food and the the more our behaviors are going to kind of neutralize and and be less chaotic around food. Right. And I think like you can see
0: (laughs) this is kind of like a person, but you can see the good in any food. So almost to say like no food is bad. All foods are good. I don't always love the like no foods are good or bad because you should feel good about your food mm. and like vegetables are great. They give you great nutrients. They taste good. Like they're colorful. Like all those things are good. And you know, meat is great because it gives you other nutrients. Like every food has positives about it. Um, So I love that perspective. Yeah, I don't I. The reason I kind of got there was because so many people would be like, well, so are you going to tell me like carrots, bring it back to carrots. <laughs> are you going to, are you going to tell me like carrots are bad or like carrots aren't good? Yeah, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to say that. Obviously carrots have vitamin A as we all know. And like, that's awesome. And they're <laughs> crunchy and whatever. But, um, yeah, I think saying all foods have good aspects. Question 21. Does anyone not have a disordered relationship with food?
1: So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's awesome. Okay. We're done. Some people are okay. <laughs> okay period. Done. Good. Uh, but I will say that I think that, you know, the vast majority of people living in our culture, if not everyone, has, if, if you haven't done the work to try and step away and like right. work on it, has some level of disordered eating. Although I think there's a lot of people... Um, that it doesn't impact to a degree that it's like super uh the word i'm looking for is like interfering in their life right
0: yeah yeah I think that's true i think i think to some extent everyone has internalized oh but these things are good and these things are bad but some people are just like i don't care about rules right so i'm gonna like not listen to that and just listen to my body and like mm-hmm. children for mm-hmm. instance like really great um true. in terms of understanding like just they wanna eat, so they're gonna eat whatever is kind of there. And yeah. I I think that, you know, some people have managed to avoid following the rules, but that doesn't mean they haven't like internalized stuff, as we sort of said with the fat phobia, I think. Right. Um everything can living be in, sort of internalized. Yeah,
1: just living in our culture with all the messaging around food being good and bad and whatever, like you're mm-hmm. obviously going to have those those perceptions unless you're actively doing the work to step away from it and recognize the harm in it. But also, like, I think that some, you know, part of the reason that some people develop, you know, disordered eating or an eating disorder or somewhere Mm -hmm. in that spectrum is because of other deeper anxieties that are going on and it's presenting in the food. Whereas somebody who maybe doesn't have that that deeper anxiety, like their issues around food in our culture are going to be more surface level and again, aren't going to interfere in their life in a deeper way. Right.
0: Yeah. So I would never want to say like an eating disorder only comes from, diet culture. Like there are so many other things that go into that. Um, It's a psychological disorder, environmental issues, all of that. But Mm. if you maybe didn't see all these things around you, like be vegetarian because it's better or like do all these things because it's better. You maybe wouldn't gravitate to food as your coping
1: mechanism, which is sort of what happens in eating disorder. Exactly. Like we're just kind of in a perfect storm of a culture for that to be occurring.
0: My final question from listeners that was submitted was question 22. What should parents or loved ones not do? What is some bad advice out there you commonly hear?
2: Yeah, I mean, the thing that people um, make the mistake of doing is asking about food, weight, and body, right? Like asking for, or, or telling the other person what to do, like telling them to eat, or focusing on you're not eating enough, or, you know, you didn't finish what's on your plate, or, you know, or, or you, I mean, granted, it, it, if they look emaciated and lost too much weight, you can say something like, you, you don't look well, you know, what's going on? How are you feeling? You know, because the, the main thing is that the person needs to be asked how they're doing and how they're feeling, not about the weight and body, right? <laughs> because you can't really tell, especially adults. It's different with a, a child and an adolescent. They need the to, parents to step in. And and say, you know, it seems like you're having a hard time, you know, nourishing yourself and I need to help you with that and get you help for that, you know, and I want to, but I also want to know what's causing it and what you're feeling and thinking and what's bothering you in your life, right? So, but it's the people that just because of a narrow um, focus and, and lack of education about this, just focus on the symptom itself instead of the person and their life and their feelings and their mood and what's causing it. You know? So that's the biggest mistake and, and so many people don't understand that, including many parents or parents even of like adult children, but young adult children like college students, right? Who Yeah, so when the college student goes home for, for breaks, vacations, that's where they become so much more symptomatic again because they're in that environment where they're getting First of all, all the messages um, they got their whole life were negative, or, for, for, you know, it's just that people are focusing on, you know, femme and food, and they feel like, micro, oh, and you know, like, look, 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 look at the microscope.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: and I think it's hard sometimes. I mean, sometimes I'll even, like, sit down with parents or um, whoever comes with them and sort of talk, like, about the fact that whenever you mention their body, it's not going to be a positive conversation for the child uh, or whoever has the eating disorder. Um, If you're,
2: yeah, exactly.
0: Like even if you're trying to say you look better, it's like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the same thing to them. Um,
2: No. Yeah. No. And when they say better, in what way? And like, Oh, that means I looked awful before. I mean, it's just all kinds of things. Yeah. The it's just not necessary and not helpful. No, yeah. It's really for to understand what's helpful and what's not. Right. Uh, or for anybody who's in contact with the person with the problem.
0: So I hope you found this first question and answer podcast helpful. I hope if you submitted a question, you heard the answer here. Um, And if you have any more questions, feel free to send them to my email. So worth, W-E-R-T-H, your wild nutrition at gmail.com. I'll be happy to answer more questions or reach out to other people who've been on the podcast or other providers I know for answers and answer those in upcoming podcasts. If you did make it this far, I would love you to take a moment and rate and review my show. That just helps others find my podcast. And, um, you know, we'd love to have this community grow. So, hopefully, you enjoyed this and have a wonderful week.